You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance and race mark out the joy set before it. Okay. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Welcome to my world, man. I do that all the time. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Let us throw off everything so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of the Lord. Will you believe it? Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you so much for giving us your word. Uh, we do believe it's your word, but at times we struggle to believe that it truly is your word. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, right now to take these, these words that while they're active and living and just make them real to us, alive in our own hearts. Use it to transform us, to help us to run the race that you've called us to race. And since Christ named it, I ask these things. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. Well, on Friday, we released a new episode of the Paragold Podcast with guest Liz Nelson. Uh, Liz moved here from London. She works at LA Darling. Uh, and what's fascinating about Liz, or one of the things fascinating about her is she's completed, I can't remember, is it 20 marathons? 21 total marathons. She started running whenever she was 32. She's 48 now. So she's run like more than a marathon a year. And she's completed the six major marathons. So she's a six-star finisher. She has uh, completed marathons in Chicago, New York City, Boston, London, Berlin, and Tokyo. So this is a woman who has traveled a lot of miles and ran a lot of miles. I mean, she has continued to persevere. She's run more than, than I will ever even want to run in my life. And in our conversation, I asked her, I said, Liz, like, like does running ever get easier you know, like sometimes you talk to people, I was talking with, with Chris Collier and, and, and Josh Agee this week, and they were talking about a runner's high, apparently like when you get to so many miles, it's like it starts feeling a little bit easier, and I'm like, what mile is that? And they're like six, and I was like, that's probably the problem, because I've never like ran more than like two, I think, so it's like, like but I asked her, I was like, does, does running ever get easier? And here was her response, she says, no, she says running never gets easier, but you do learn how to tolerate the pain better. Think about that. She said, running never gets easier, but you do, as a marathon runner, learn how to tolerate the pain better. And as she continued to talk, I realized this is the secret to this woman's success. It's why she's been able to accomplish all that she's accomplished. It's why she's ran thousands upon thousands of miles. It's why she's con- completed marathon after marathon after marathon, year after year after year, in spite of her three knee surgeries and all of her setbacks. It's why she's been able to continue to press forward. It's not because it's ever gotten easier, but she's learned, she's learned how to tolerate the pain better. And if you're like, okay, that's great, good for her. What in the world does that have to do with me? Well, according to the preacher in the book of Hebrews, it matters because this life that you're currently living is like a race. 
And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It is this long distance running. And therefore, spiritually speaking, if we are going to endure, if we are going to persevere, if we are going to keep running, if we're going to cross the finish line, if like the Apostle Paul, there's going to ever come a point in our life where we can say like him, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, then we have to learn how to tolerate pain better. We live, sociologists tell us, in what is probably the softest generation recorded. We are a generation that screams faster than any generation before us. We have a very low threshold for pain. And if we're going to persevere, we've got to learn how to tolerate pain better. We've got to develop some grit. We've got to develop some resilience. We have to learn how to handle the pain and suffering and hardship that we are sure to encounter in this journey. I was reminded this week of a YouTube video that I watched uh, last year, I think we have a picture of this. We can take Liz off and, and put the next one on. But uh, I watched a YouTube video. This is uh, Kara Lawson. Uh, she is the uh, head basketball coach for uh, the women's basketball team at Duke University. And in this video, you can go watch it later. I think it's like two and a half, three minutes long. The whole thing is great. But she's talking to her basketball team. And here's what she says. She says, if you're sitting around and you're waiting for things to get easier in life, it's never going to happen. And she goes on and she explains that. She said, some of you girls, you thought when you graduated school, things are going to get easier. And you got to college and you're like, well, if I can just get out of college, things are going to get easier. And you're like, well, then if I can just get married, then maybe things will get easier. If I can have kids, things will get easier. If I can get the kids out of the house, then things will get easier. If I can retire, then things will get easier. And she says, let me tell you something right now. Things are never going to get easier. So if you're sitting around waiting for easy, you're going to just be sitting at this bus stop and the bus is never going to come said, if you're sitting around waiting for things to get easier in life, it's never going to happen. So listen to this. Rather than waiting for your life to get easier, she said, how about you just learn how to do hard better? Guys, that same thing applies to the Christian life. And it's what the writer in Hebrews has been trying to point us to week after week. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 2, one of the things that he was very clear on is you don't have to work hard to go to hell. All you have to do is drift. All you have to do is try to live your life on easy street, to become apathetic, to settle for living in your comfort zone, which you think makes you safe, but in the end really only makes you small. It keeps you from growing, from moving forward, to experiencing the fullness of the life that Christ has for you. And this is what Jesus himself said. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said there's, there's two roads, one of two roads that all of us are on today. Do you remember this in the Sermon on the Mount? He says there is a broad road, an easy road that many people like to be on. In the end, it leads you to destruction. But then he says there is another road. There is a narrow road and it is difficult and it is hard. But in the end, if you'll stay on it, because that's the road Jesus is on, it will lead you into life. And you see, because the preacher knows this is true over and over and over again, he is going to stay, say, Don't get on the broad path. Don't drift. Don't settle for easy or comfort. Like continue to press forward even in the midst of the pain. And if you look with me in verse 1, I mean, he he kicks off kind of at the end of verse 1 by saying this exact thing. He says, let us run with perseverance or run with endurance, your translation might say, the race that is marked out for us. Now that word race in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, is the Greek word agon. And it's actually where we get our English word, agony. And if you look up the word agony in the dictionary, agony is defined as extreme physical or psychological pain. It's to be in anguish. 
It's to engage in a violent struggle. And according to the preacher, think about this. He says, what can I compare this life to? Yeah, that. It's agonizing. He says, this is what real life is like. Like, like real life is not what you see on Facebook. Do you understand that? Real life is not what you see on Instagram. Like, I know it's easy to look and be like, man, there are some people out there, like, their life is so easy. No, it's not. I promise you. There is nobody right now in this world, even in our country, who is living just this perfectly easy, trouble-free life. Job, in Job chapter 14, verse 1, says this, Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. How's that for a pick-me-up? Your life is short. You're going to die quicker than you think. And in the short time you have here, it's going to be full of trouble. That's what Job says. Jesus himself said to his disciples, to the ones who left everything to follow him, in this life, you will have trouble. Not you might have trouble. You could have trouble. He says, no, you absolutely, because this life is a race, there will be seasons that feel like agony. There are seasons of great pain, emotionally, physically, relationally, and psychologically. I was talking with a member of our church this past week who said, in my life, I've had a lot of peaks and a lot of valleys, but the valleys always seem to last longer than the peaks. The hard times always seem to last longer than the good times. And my guess is today, there are many of you in the room today who can relate to that, that you would agree that a life of comfort and ease is actually the exception to the rule. And a life of hardship is actually the norm. I mean, sure, there are seasons where you're like, you know what? Like, everything's going pretty good. My marriage is great. My kids are great. My health is great. My job is great. But those seasons, at least from my experience, are few and far and in between. So the question is today, how do we do this thing called life? How do we run this race? How do we learn how to do hard better? And if you're taking notes, the preacher is going to show us five things, five steps we can take to ensure that we endure, to ensure that we persevere. And the first thing he wants us to see in the text is that if we're going to do hard, better, and therefore finish the race that God has called us to race and, and receive this, what Paul talks about, imperishable crown, to reign in victory, to experience life as we long to experience. If we're going to finish that race, the first thing the preacher wants us to see today is that we need healthy expectations. In other words, because God's word has told us this life is a race, we should expect suffering. We should expect pain. We should expect hardship and struggle. And if you're like, well, how does that help me endure hardship? Like, how does that help me do hard better? Well, because as M. Scott Peck, who is a psychologist at Harvard, points out, when we expect life to be easy, we actually make it much harder. But if we expect life to be hard, then it actually ends up being easier. And I want you to think about it like this. I was talking with Philip Greer uh, this week, and, and he was talking about a time that he competed in an adventure race at the Natchez uh, Trace State Park in Tennessee. And he said he was eight miles in on this race when all of a sudden he hit a wall. They began to experience some flu-like symptoms. His body began to kind of break down on him. It didn't want to go forward. And what he said is, is, he would have freaked out in that moment, been like, man, I don't know what's happening. Maybe I should sit down and not go any further. But just a few miles before that, the exact same thing happened to a guy that he was running with. And so Philip was prepared for it. 
He was thinking, okay, like this is a reality. Like this happens to people in this race. Like the body gets so stressed. Eventually, like you're going to have this, this issue that could arise. And because of that, rather than the hardship making him freak out and shocking him and kind of like disabling him, he was able to continue to put one foot in front of another. And eventually he came out on the other side better than when he went into it. And so it's important, guys. Listen, if you're going to do hard better, you have to actually expect hardship is going to happen. That will help you better prepare. And so think about this for just a moment, guys. Like, it's important you hear this. I would say one of the things that, that one of the things I've noticed that knocks people off course in the Christian faith over the last 12 years is suffering. And part of the reason is not because of the suffering itself. It's because they're shocked that the suffering actually is happening to them. Does that make sense? It's not the event itself that's too hard for them. They're just shocked that the event ever happened, and that becomes really hard for them to deal with. I just want to say this. If you know someone around you who's ever had cancer, why do you think you couldn't have cancer? Like, if you've known of the people who have lost kids, like, what makes you think that you could never lose a kid? If you know the people whose parents have gone through divorce, or if you know the marriages that have struggled, what makes you think, like, that will never happen to me? Now, listen, I'm not trying to get you to live in such a way that you always, like, are waiting for the other shoe to fall. Like, that you're always, like, thinking about this impending doom ahead of you. But what I want you to realize is this. Hardship does happen. You're not too important for hardship. You're not too spiritual for hardship. Like, does it make sense? You're not too educated. You're not too wealthy. Like, hardship happens to everybody. And you didn't know this going into it. If you will have a healthy expectation, listen, if you will know life is going to be hard, it won't mean that you won't experience pain. You'll still experience pain, but the pain won't knock you off course. It will allow you to continue to put one step in front of the other. And so that's the first thing. If you want to do hard better, you have to have healthy expectations. Secondly, if you want to do hard better, not only do you need healthy expectations, you also need humility. You need humility. Look with me in verse 4. We did not read this earlier, but I want you to read it with me. The preacher, remember this is a sermon, and he's going to go from one metaphor, talking about racing, to now talking about relationship. He's going to talk about how, how our relationship with God is that like a father and a child. And listen to what he says, verse 4. Read it with me. In your struggle against sin, he says to this church that's been persecuted and been experiencing hardship, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. So he's like, man, Jesus shed his own blood. You haven't had to shed your own blood yet because of your suffering. And then he says, look, part of the reason you're so discouraged, verse 5, is you have completely forgotten the word of God. You've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. And then he's just going to quote Proverbs here. He says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. Endure the suffering you're going through right now as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. I mean, think about how different our world is, by the way. He looks at the church and he just assumes. He says, hey, we've all had fathers, like good fathers that disciplined us and we all respect our fathers, right? That's not the way it is in our culture today. It's so sad that we cannot say that today. Some of us have had terrible fathers who did not lovingly discipline us and we do not respect them. But to this church, he said, we, 
We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They, talking about our earthly parents, disciplined us for a little while as they thought was best. And I'm glad he threw that in there because, listen, as parents, sometimes we get it wrong, don't we, when it comes to discipline? Like sometimes, like, we, like you, when you discipline your kid, think about this, my wife and I were talking about it, you should always discipline your kid out of love and for their good. Do you always discipline your kid out of love and for their good? Yes or no? Thank you for Capri being honest, the one person in the room today. If you're like me, there are sometimes I discipline my kids because they just annoy the crap out of me. And I'm like, you've got to be quiet. Like, I'm about to put you in your place. Or they get in my way. They make me angry. That's not the way God disciplines us. And he makes that clear. He says, the parents, our parents, for a little while, as they thought best, they disciplined us. They did the best they could. But God always disciplines us for our good. Verse 10, in order that we may share in his holiness. And in verse 11, no discipline, no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, there's a lot in there, but here's just what I want you to see, and I want to thank Tim Keller for helping me see this this week. The word discipline that shows up over and over again, it's the Greek word paideia, which is where we get our English word pediatrician. Now, why is that important? Well, think about what does a pediatrician do? A pediatrician, a good one, seeks the welfare of your child. A good pediatrician might even inflict a little bit of pain, like thinking about a vaccine or whatever, but never because they're angry at the kid or want to punish the kid, but because they want the kid to be healthy. They want the kid to grow, to mature, to become the best version of his or herself. And what the preacher is saying is, listen, this is exactly the way God uses suffering in your life. Which means, guys, hear this. When you're going through suffering, despite what your brain might tell you, it is not pointless It is not purposeless. It's not that God is punishing you, but it's actually, if you're in Christ, it's that God is using that suffering to help grow you and mature you to become like Jesus and therefore your true and better self. And this is why if you flip over just one page to the book of James, the book that comes right after Hebrews, James says this, look with your own eyes. James 1, verse 2, it's not really a verse you see on a coffee mug that often, but it'd be a good one to put on there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Does that not seem stupid? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Verse 3, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. I want to see a show of hands. Please be honest. Is there any of you in here that's lacking in anything, spiritually speaking? Is anybody in here still like, I have some work. There's some areas in my life I need to grow in. Suffering is one of the best ways for you to get there. Suffering is one of the best ways for you to become complete, for you to become mature, for you to become more and more of the person God created you to be. And I know we do not like that, and that is why, and this is my point of point two, this is why if we're going to do hard better, we have to be a people of humility. We have to be a people of humility. Because here's the thing. Again, discipline never seems like a good idea if you're a kid. Like, my kids were here on the front row, and I talked about this in the first service. Like, I have never once disciplined my kids, and they say, 
Father, thank you. That affliction is exactly what I needed. You're so good. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. Right? Like, they've never once done that. Instead, when I discipline my kids, you know what they say? Almost every time. That's not fair. You don't love me. One of my kids said this past week, you're the worst parents ever. Yeah. Why? Because as the preacher says in verse 11, to a kid, no discipline seems pleasant in the moment, but painful. It hurts. It seems unnecessary and unfair. And listen, guys, the same is true in our relationship with God. You're never going to experience suffering in the moment and understand why you're going through it. You're never going to experience suffering in the moment and be like, wow, I totally get why you're doing this, Lord. This is great. I feel so loved by you. No, you're a child. That's what it says in here. You're a child. You have a very small brain compared to God. You have a very limited perspective compared to God. You're not going to always understand. And so when suffering hits, we've got one of two options, church, and here it is. You can either say, well, if I can't figure out how it's for my good, then it must not be for good. As if you're omniscient, as if you know everything. You can be arrogant or you can be humble. And you can choose to say like the prophet Isaiah, just as God's ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Like, like that's just the way that it is. Like, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't like it. But I choose to believe, I choose to be humble enough to realize, that even if I don't fully understand it, that God knows what he's doing and he absolutely is using this for my good. And one of the great stories of how we see this play out in the scriptures is the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was in Hebrews 11. Y'all looked at last week, the hall of faith, right? He was a man of great faith. And he, God used him to save the nation of Israel. But here's the thing, before he became this great man of faith, Joseph was a punk. He was just a brat, man. He, he, he was his dad's favorite. And anytime like a parent makes one kid a favorite over others, that kid becomes soft and spoiled and self-absorbed. And that was Joseph. But then what happens? His brothers, because they just are sick of it, they betray him, they, they sell him into slavery. Joseph then ends up in Potiphar's house. He was a military official, and he's working for Potiphar, and he's doing good work, and Potiphar's wife hits on Joseph. She's like, hey, you and me, we should hook up. And he's like, my God doesn't roll that way, so I'm not going to roll that way. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to accuse you of rape. So she accuses him of rape, even though he didn't even touch the woman. He then gets thrown in prison, but he continues to trust God. He continues to say, like, you know what? Like, I trust God's in control even when I'm not. I trust God. As a result, he eventually climbs to second in command in Egypt. So he's the second most powerful man in the world at this point. Israel goes through a famine. Israel sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to try to get some relief, to get some help, so that they don't starve to death. And who does Joseph's brothers run into while they're in Egypt? Baby brother Joseph. They thought he was dead. Imagine that scene. The one that you threw into this pit and had sold into slavery is now the second most powerful man in the world. And they are sitting there and they're terrified. And they're like, he's going to kill us. We're done for. And what does Joseph say in Genesis 50 verse 20? He says, what you meant for evil, what you meant for harm, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. So that many people would be saved. And then Israel was able to be delivered. They were able to be saved through this famine. Now listen, let me be very clear with you. I am not saying today, and the Bible is not saying today, that every time you are suffering, it's God who is creating the suffering. 
That's not what this passage is saying. It's not that God is like, your life is going well, and he's like, I've got to create some suffering in your life. I've got to make things bad for you just to try to help you. Like, I, that's not what this is saying, that God made all this stuff happen. Like, God is against suffering. I want to be clear on that. Like, and, and some people don't believe that. And it's because their theology starts in Genesis 3 rather than Genesis 1 and 2. But if you start your theology where the Bible starts, and God created a good world, free of suffering. Look at the Garden of Eden. The only reason there's suffering in this world is because sin is in this world. God hates sin, and he hates suffering. He grieves suffering. He grieves your suffering. God is not indifferent, like, it's, it's for your good. Like, you know, it's all good. Cool. Like, he grieves your suffering. He's angry about your suffering. And one day, good news, he's going to do away with your suffering. But until then, know this. There is not one ounce of suffering that comes into your life that does not first sift at the sovereign hands of a loving father who is using it all for your good. He's using it all, it says in verse 10, to help you share in his holiness. And that leads me to point three, which is if you're going to learn how to do hard better, not just do you need to have healthy expectations, not just do you need humility, but you need holiness. You need holiness. Read verse 14 with me. Hebrews 12, verse 14. The preacher goes on. Remember, this is just one sermon. So these aren't, even though they're broken up in your, uh, by, by the way, the reason these are broken up in your Bible, the ch- it's just for your own benefit. It's not the way it was originally. So it's just kind of like one manuscript, okay? So what's going on here. He's just preaching, and he, and he gets to this next point. He says this, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be what? What's the word? Holy. For without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. Verse 15, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Some of you, maybe you've been hurt today by people you've been sinned, sinned against. You've got to let go of your bitterness. You've got to let go of your bitterness. It's not just hurting. First off, it's not hurting the person who hurts you. It's mainly hurting you and it's hurting the people that you love the most. It defiles you and it defiles those around you. Let go of your bitterness. And then he says this, verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Don't even have a hint of sexual morality in your life. The word he uses there, by the way, is pornea, which is where we get our Greek word, or our English word, pornography. See to it no one is sexually immoral or as godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance, right, as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, or this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Why? Is it because God is not forgiving? No, it's because sin is not forgiving. God is forgiving, sin is not. There's a lot of consequences to our sins. And so, this is why he says what he says in verse 1. If you go back with me in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We have all these people from Hebrews 11 and those of faith who have run the race before it. And they finished the race and now they're cheering us on. Because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He says, let us throw off every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Now, to help you understand what he's talking about here, Troy, can you grab that backpack for me? I forgot this in the first service. You guys are getting like, this is going to be such a way better sermon because I actually have it in this service. Thank you so much. Is that heavy? Yeah. It's super heavy, isn't it? Okay, so I don't know what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to set it right here. Um, here's the image. Okay, in just a little bit, 3 o'clock, we're going to go have a relay race at the MC Olympics, right? I plan to run in the race. I am not fast. Just want to make that clear. I don't even think I'm fast, okay? But I'm going to go try to help my team, be a team player. Imagine 
We're at the MC Olympics, and I'm about to get started. Whistle's about to blow, or the gun's about to fire. I don't know what they're going to have, but it's about to start. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out, time out, time out, time out. And imagine I get over there, and you see me do this. This, by the way, is like a 45-pound weight. I went to Anytime Fitness today, uh, and I went and grabbed this weight this morning, and I put it in a backpack. There's one woman on the treadmill that was looking at me. She might have called on me, thought I was stealing it. I'm not stealing it. My brother's at Anytime Fitness told me I could take it anyways. Just want you guys to know what's going on behind the scenes stuff. Okay. Um, I'm about to rip this out of my, my ear, I think. So imagine. Pff, about to get started. And you see me do this right here. Okay, now I'm ready. What are you guys going to think? Be honest. Give me some feedback. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That guy's going to lose. Why? Because I just threw in a bunch of unnecessary weight on my back. It's going to slow me down. And it's not only going to slow me down, it's going to slow my team down. It's not only going to hurt me, it's going to hurt others around me. Guys, that's exactly the way sin works. When we sin, we don't think it's a big deal. But the Bible talks about sin as a weight that we throw into a pack that will put an unnecessary amount of weight and strain on you. It will slow you down and wear you out. It's not that you can't run and still have sin in your life. It's just that you're going to make it a lot harder on yourself if you don't get it out of your life. Does that make sense? It's why the translation, actually, he says in here, throw off every sin. But in the ESV, it doesn't just say throw off every sin. It says throw off, over here it says throw off everything that hinders you. But in the ESV, it says throw off every weight that hinders you. So yeah, like, like, like get rid of the sin in your life, the things that you know is sin. But not just that, he says get rid of any unnecessary weight that's in your life. Now what's the difference between a weight and a sin? Because he talks about it two different ways. What's the difference between a weight and a sin? Well, a weight is not something that is a sin in and of itself, but it's something that can cause you to sin. And there's a lot of examples of that. Kind of some low-hanging fruit is thinking about social media. Is social media a sin, yes or no? No, it's not in and of itself a sin. Can social media cause you to sin? A hundred percent. And there are so many other examples I can give, from movies to music to books. There's all kinds of things in our life that can become weights that hinder us in our running. And therefore, he says, look, if you're going to do hard better, if you're going to finish the race, you have to get rid of the sin. You have to get rid of the weights. You have to take your holiness seriously. You have to take your obedience to Jesus seriously. And let me just say this, and I'll move on to the next point. Guys, this is very important when it comes to seasons of suffering. Because when you enter into seasons of suffering, what typically happens is you actually end up doing the opposite of what you need to do. When seasons of suffering hit, typically you do things like retreat from community. You do things like you stop reading the Bible. You stop praying. You stop trying to come in here and worship because you don't feel God. You don't, you don't see what God's up to. You don't understand. Or maybe you're even mad at God. And listen, according to this text, the worst thing you could do is try to numb your pain with some sort of comfort-related sin. Pursue holiness, especially in suffering. This is the way you keep putting one foot in front of the other foot, in front of the other foot, and move forward. So we need healthy expectations. We need humility. We need holiness. And then because I'm trying to start every point with an, with an H word, number four, we also need the household of faith. In other words, we need the church. We need brothers and sisters who are willing to run with us. 
If you notice in this text, he speaks in the plural. He says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw off everything and let us run with endurance. What is the preacher getting at? He's getting at the reality that this life is a team sport. At the reality that if we're going to finish the race before us, we need each other. Back in 2019, there was a world championship race in Doha. I've got a picture of it. Maybe you've seen this before. It's a pretty famous photo now. The guy in the red is Bremar Suko Debo, I think is how you say his name. Uh, and he is a runner from uh, West Africa. And in this picture, what he's doing is, is this guy in the yellow, whose name is Jonathan Busby. He was, if you watch the video, he, he was dehydrated. We found out later he had an injury. His body literally, he could not move forward. So all these runners are just blowing by him, trying to finish the race, but not Dabo. He stops, and he puts Busby over his shoulder, and then he helps him cross the finish line. It's incredible. And after the race, Dabo was asked about it. Why did you do this? And here was his response. He says, this was someone who needed help. So I went to help. Nothing more. It was normal. Now, unfortunately, that's not normal. That's why it gets so much publicity. That's not normal in the world. But it absolutely should be normal in the church. There will be seasons where you need someone to put you on their shoulders. And there's going to be seasons where you need to put someone else on your shoulders. There's going to be seasons where you're going to have to rely on someone else that's strong. And there's going to be seasons where you're going to be strong and someone else is going to have to rely on you. And that's exactly what he says right here, the, the preacher, in verse 12 and verse 13. He says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees and make level paths for your feet. Why? Just so you can run and you can do your thing? No, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Man, what a beautiful picture. Imagine a church where we could, like this Dabo guy, say, there was someone who needed help. I went to help. Nothing more. It was normal. Like That would be a beautiful church to be a part of. And it's so important we take this posture if we're going to finish the race. Lastly, not only do we need healthy expectations, not only do we need humility, not only do we need holiness, not only do we need the household of faith, but also if we're going to do hard better, we ultimately need the hero of our faith. In verse 1 through 3, let's read it again. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners, so that Look at this. You will then not grow weary, but will actually not grow weary and not lose heart. When we are suffering, there are two temptations we need to avoid. The first temptation is we begin to look inward. Why me? We just focus on how bad I hurt or how bad my life is. Or we can we can tend if we're not careful to fall into self pity. We focus inward. Or we can fall into another trap as we focus outward. And we start comparing ourselves to other runners. Well, God, how come his race isn't as hard as my race? How come he don't have the obstacles in front of him I have in front of me? 
This is what Peter did, by the way, in John chapter 20. Remember whenever he's talking to the resurrected Jesus and Jesus says to, to Peter, he says, hey man, I love you, but you just need to know the rest of your life's going to be very difficult. Go read it on your own later. It's, um, it's in John chapter 20. The rest of your life's going to be difficult. In fact, you're going to have to do a lot of stuff that you don't want to do. You're even going to have to be stretched out. And, you're, and you know, by the way, Peter, eventually he would be crucified upside down. Jesus is just, he knows this is going to happen. He's like, this, this life's going to be really hard for you. And Peter does what a lot of us does. He looks over at John, who is known as a disciple whom Jesus loves, and he says, well, what about him? What's he going to have to do? And Jesus' response to him in John 20, 22, is he says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And essentially, that is the exact same thing the preacher is saying right here. He's saying, look, if you want to do hard better, if you want to finish the race God's given you, don't primarily look inward, don't primarily look outward, but look upward. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who left this perfect place in heaven and entered the race on our behalf, the one who experienced an agonizing, excruciating amount of pain and hardship and humiliation. And despite the shame and despite the suffering, he continued to trust God the Father every step of the way, all the way to the cross where he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. You didn't have to shed blood for your sins. Jesus did shed his blood for your sins. And not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but all because of his grace. And because that is true, what that means, and no other religion in the world will teach this to you, that Christianity is the only religion that teaches this. We have a God who not only can empathize with your suffering, but he one day is going to put an end to it. He's going to put an end to it. As sure as the resurrection, guys, one day it's all going to be over. The Apostle Paul once said, God, I mean, Apostle, what a frustrating human being to an enemy of the gospel. I mean, what does the Apostle Paul once said? To live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul, we're going to kill you. That's okay, to die as gain. Okay, well then, we're not going to kill you. We're going to take you out to the beach and we're going to stone you and make you suffer. He says, that's okay, Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this present world aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. One day he's going to put an end to all of the suffering. One day we're going to experience... As C.S. Lewis said, all sad things will come untrue. We will experience the abundant life that we all long for. So fix your eyes on this Jesus. Set your eyes on this Jesus, he says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Question, what was the joy set before Jesus that caused him to endure the cross? Somebody said it, said it loud. Us. Where does that come from? Well, what is the one thing that Jesus had to leave heaven in order to get? Didn't have to leave heaven to get glory. He already had glory. He didn't have to leave heaven in order to get us to worship him. Well, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need that. God's not deficient. He's not like some sort of like insecure person. He's like, I just need you guys to like me. So I'll do whatever it takes to get you to like me. He's not lacking anything. The only thing Jesus had to leave heaven in order to get was you. And you see, it's so important that you realize that you were the joy set before Christ because it's only whenever you see him running his agonizing race because you were the joy set before him can you then have the power to run your agonizing race with joy set before you. This is the key to endurance. This is the key to perseverance. I want you to hear this, and we're about done today. More than you need to run out of this room and say, I'm going to do more hard stuff for Jesus. More than that, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. You need to look at Jesus over and over and over and over. 
You need to set your eyes on him through things like worship, which we're about to do again, to, to sing these beautiful truths to God. You need to set your eyes on him through scripture. You need to set your eyes on him through prayer. You need to set your eyes on him through community. You need to set your eyes on him through, through good music that you listen to throughout the week. You need to set your eyes on him through uh, just all the different spiritual disciplines that have been given. Like set your eyes on Jesus. And listen, if you're here in the room and you hear me say that and you're like, I've tried that already. Didn't work. then I would encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see Jesus as he really is. I I was thinking this morning in Mark 10 about the blind beggar who cried out for Jesus. And Jesus came over to him. Remember that? And, And Jesus says to him, he says, what do you want me to do for you? That's a really good question, by the way. It's not as easy to answer as you think it is. Like, imagine if Jesus came to you today and he's like, what, what do you want me to do for you? It's like, yeah, one, what do you want me to do? Give me the one thing you want me to do. What do you want me to do for you? This man said to Jesus, I want to see. I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And then the very next line, immediately, he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. That's interesting. Jesus heals him and says, you can go now. And rather than the man stealing a little miracle and running away, what does he do? His eyes are open and because he sees Jesus as he really is, he says, I want to be with you wherever you go. And this is the way it works. I told my wife this week, I was like, you know, there's a lot of people in our church right now that are suffering. And it's not because our church is just like unique. It's just that we have a church filled with a bunch of human beings in a fallen world. And I was like, man, like I don't want to preach another sermon that doesn't really help people. Like I truly want to bring something that helps people in the midst of suffering and hardship. And I, I've just, man, the Lord, even this morning, was just telling me like, there's nothing I can say to you or do for you that's going to ultimately help you endure hardship. Like the Holy Spirit is going to have to open your eyes to see Jesus really is as good as he says he is. Like every week we come here, and that's what the preacher was trying to do in Hebrews. I mean, he's just like, he's just talking to his church, and they're just like you, and they're just like me, and some days they're like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. And it's why over and over he just keeps saying, Jesus, 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 I point you, Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, he's your creator, he's your sustainer, he's your pioneer, he's your perfecter, he's your salvation, and he's your satisfaction, he's the one who forgives you and provides you free, he's just pointing you over and over to Jesus. He is the one that we need. If you see Jesus as he really is, listen, guys, I promise you, you're not going to leave him. You're not going to drift away. You're not going to tap out. You will endure. You will endure. And so here's the way I want to end. I'll call the band to go ahead and come forward. And if you will, close your eyes for a moment. I'm about you to close your eyes. And I just want to pray over you. And I want to pray specifically that you will see Jesus as he really is. And before I do that, I want you to just ask yourself or answer this question. I know I'm in front of a crowd, but I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. When you think of Jesus, this is for you personally, I'll answer it out loud, but what comes to your mind? When you think of maybe your relationship with Jesus, 
How would you draw that? If you had to draw your relationship with Jesus on a, on a sheet of paper, like how would you, what would that look like? I mean, another way I ask the question, like where is Jesus right now? Is he close to you? Is he involved in the intimate details of your life? Or is he distant? Is he far? Is he aloof? Is he standoffish? Who is Jesus to you? And I just want to ask you, if you would do this, again, not out loud, but in your heart, would you just right now ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes in this moment to see Jesus as he really is? see Jesus as love, to see him as tender, to see him as as compassionate, as merciful, as gracious, as a friend. And Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friend. Do you see Jesus as your friend? Do you see him as your savior? Do you see him as your Lord? Do you see him as the one who has accomplished everything you could not accomplish for yourself through his life, death, and resurrection? If not, would you just say, Holy Spirit, would you please open my eyes to see Jesus as he is? Father, I thank you so much for those who are here today. I know that you love every one of them. Sometimes it's very hard for us to see you, Jesus, as you really are because of maybe something we heard about you growing up because maybe we've seen a poor example of you through the church or other pastors because of our own sins, because of lies that we believe that we're being fed by the enemy. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just override that system, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to receive this truth of who you are and what you have done for us, Jesus. Thank you for the agony that you endured. Thank you for enduring the race for us so that we can now have this great hope that one day truly we will cross the finish line and all this suffering and pain will be over. And for the hope we have that in the midst of it that we have everything we need in you to endure. I pray that if there's anybody here today who does not know you in a real personal way, that today would be the day of salvation for them. Jesus, we thank you for everything that you've accomplished for us. You're so good. Help us now as we worship you, to worship you in a way that reflects the reality of what you've done for us. It's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing a couple songs, take communion, and then we'll be dismissed.